This is the Podcast Inc. production. Booyah! This is the moment podcasting fans listening around the world have been waiting for. Coming to you not so live from a listening device of your choice. It's time! Podcasting out of this corner, a mixed martial talker, holding no professional record. He stands at six feet one and one half inches tall, weighing in at whatever he feels like, hailing out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, presenting the sometimes angry, always funny, Self-proclaimed podcasting champion of the world, Steve Fingerstyles! So, welcome to another rendition of the podcast. I am here once again, always again, and joined by the former senior editor for PlayStation Magazine, a former producer at Sega, and the current head of production at Digital Eclipse, Stephen Frost. Hey, how's it going? Doing fantastic today, my friend. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to uh, chatting with you a little bit about you know what we're doing at Digital Eclipse and and you know all the fun and exciting things that are going on. All right, right off the bat, no pressure. Mike has been on the show a few times now, so you have to live up to his caliber so you could make a, a triumphant <laughs> return in the future. <laughs> Uh, that's tough. That's tough. Mike, uh, Mike is a smorgasbord of just like right. uh, fun, fun stories <laughs> and knowledge and things like that. We'd have a lot of overlap, but um, you know, we 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 even had a little bit of uh, initial meetup in the editorial side back in the days when I was working on the PlayStation magazine. He okay. was he was on the editorial side too. So right. we have a lot of folks uh, at Digital Clips now who came from that editorial background. So it's kind of like that's a reunion awesome. of family of sorts. Oh, that's so awesome! Well, before we get into all that, we got to know off the bat. When did your love for video games start? Was this a child thing? Did this come after? What's your origin story with video games? Yeah, I think my love of video games is, is pretty much like a lot of folks, you know, growing up and and kind of, of of enjoying them and appreciating them. I started more so on the computer side of stuff. Oh, uh, really, it was it was you know I think the C sixty four right. That's a it's a classic case for a lot of people. Of course, but I was. I was really, my family was really adamant on the sort of the PC side, the IBM clones. And so even though I had a C64, they normally spent their money, uh, you know, my folks is up buying games for the PC and less about the C64. Right. Um, so I had to sort of support my C64 habit, but I got a good exposure um, through both sides of the coin there, you know, the Commodore side and the PC side and right. how they compete against each other. And you know, just grew up around that base and, and friends having Amigas and falling in love with the Amiga 500. Um, yeah. And just so I got a, I think I got a pretty well-rounded exposure to stuff when I was pretty young. Mm -hmm. And then eventually kind of migrated over from the computer side of things to console. 
um, and, gotcha. and just love that aspect of it. The the need to not upgrade so constantly, and some of the cool stuff that was you know being done, especially in those early days of competition between say you know Nintendo and Sega. So I think that's what kind of cultivated my excitement uh, for games and also just the love for going to the arcades and things like that. True. That's a lost form right there. The arcades, that smell, that feel, everything about it was so good. <laughs> I loved it. And I, and I had a really good exposure to arcades because um, where I was, where I lived at the time, okay. they had a lot, especially growing up, a lot of nickel arcades where oh. basically you just, you just had to pay an entrance fee. Oh. And then each game was like a nickel or two nickels. And that's that included crazy. new games. So, I could take, you know, gather and save my allowance or just miscellaneous funds and then put it in any arcades and be able to entertain myself for like the whole day, right? Or, or a good chunk of the day on very little money. Okay, now I got to know, what was your go-to arcade back in the day? Uh, I liked a lot of uh, platformer stuff, okay. the Neo Geo stuff in those days. I kind of eventually transitioned a lot into fighting games. So of course. any fighting game that started coming, especially in my middle school, high school you know, going to college years right. became all fighting games for the most part. And any sort of fighting game you could find, especially the Street Fighters, I played that a ton. You know, anything from Capcom, even, you know, odd stuff like the Primal Rages and, and things like that, the Killer Instincts, um, I played that uh, a ton. So most of my time in the arcades, especially during those formative, like, high school years, was focused primarily on fighting games. How old do you think you were when you played your first video game? Oh, man. Uh, do you even remember? That's tough. I, right? I think probably around seven. Oh, okay. So you're a bit older. I started getting, yeah, you know, six or seven probably okay. is when I uh, really started to understand and be interested. Like, I would watch people play right. games and friends and stuff growing gotcha. up and going over to friends' house yeah, and their yeah. parents, you know, their dads playing games and stuff like that. But I really didn't really draw me into it probably around seven or eight when I started putting things together and starting really, you know, discerning like the differences between the different games trying out different games to see what i liked and things like that. Sure. so that's that's roughly time where things started to accelerate and then it it really started picking up probably around like you know 10 11 and then kind of going from there oh okay god because i'm always interested to know because some people really don't remember because they remember their whole life with just video games and even i had to think back i was like okay i know it was the coleco vision for sure and then i'm thinking right. i'm going i'm going i'm like it had to be donkey kong and i think it was actually donkey kong jr because that was like the game that made me want to play more and more after. And it was like, I just hook, line, and sinker. I haven't put down a controller since. But I'm dumbfounded by people who grew up on like PCs and, and Macs and stuff. Because even though I'm technically savvy as I put up parentheses, like I could get my buy. As a child, I never really wanted that extra work, that extra processing. Like all that stuff that was behind keeping like a, a good PC up updated. I would just give me my console, pop in... Uh, a game, blow on it a few times, I'm good to go. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's the case where my parents were, I think, justifying is like, well, I could use it for schoolwork, right? And they could okay. use it for some of their office sure. stuff. So we ended up spending like, at that time, probably like 1600 2000 on a computer because you had to at that time, right? which is really inflation-wise is like That's a crazy money. amount of money, right? It is. Um, so, you know, I'm playing that and, and kind of like being exposed to it. But really, if I had to recall back to the first game, like I think... Fundamentally, the one that really, the two franchises that really got me were um, 
King's Quest. King's okay. Quest, the first King's Quest, really resonated with me, and that whole opened up the doors to the whole kind of graphic adventure kind of experience. Right. And then, and then Wing Commander. Oh. On those early days, so Wing Commander, I was huge into Wing Commander. That really just and any game that was sort of like Wing Commander, where the space combat or even things sure. that were like. Um, where you got into the cockpit and you, you know, and mm. you flew something. It was a little bit more arcadey. Um, those two really um, won me over, and I was obsessed with sort of anything that Sierra did. Eventually, everything that Infocom did with their text adventures, sure. and then you know, Origin with their sort of Wing Commander stuff. And those were sort of like the three kind of paths I took down. I went down during my sort of PC side of things. Now, do you think it helped you get into the video game world now as an adult because of having all that technology back in the day as a child? I think so. I think what I got that helped me and I continue to try to do now is just expose myself to a variety of platforms and types of games. Okay. You know, oftentimes when people grow up, they have a singular system, whether it's an NES or a ColecoVision or a television sure. or, or, you know, 2600 or something like that. It's like mm-hmm. a singular system. And, and there's a variety of games, but it's really like their experience is tied to that one kind of system. I was fortunate enough to have uh, friends and people who lived, me, uh, lived near me who had like a diverse number of systems. So every nice. day I would go and play games on different systems. Right. And, you know, learn to appreciate them. And there was always a new and exciting adventure. I remember the time when I went to a friend's house, uh, the first time I saw an Amiga 500, and it blew my, my mind. Like, there was <laughs> nothing like that. And he had it hooked up to a stereo, and oh, I saw Dragon's Lair, and it came from the desert. And those were, like, just defining so i'm like holy cow my computer is way more expensive than this right and it can't do remarkably <laughs> anything that this this system does so i think that exposure really kind of you know lit the the sort of the the torch inside me in order to to want to do something with games i wasn't sure what at the time i knew i wanted to kind of get involved with it in some capacity um but i've always appreciated and even through the rest of my life kind of that multifaceted broad exposure to different types of game systems and you know different types of game genres and i think that's helped me in all of my sort of jobs that i've done but it's funny though you did work at sega at one point when it was neck and neck the, the video game wars between sega and nintendo like sega was the cooler brand nintendo was for the kiddies like you know what i mean yeah. so you got to witness sort of like the tribalness behind video game consoles right yeah there's there's always been sort of that it even started uh, earlier like when i was on the um you know, uh, side when I first got into games, uh, I was going to the University of Oregon, and okay. I there was a studio that was uh, across the street from the University of Oregon, which was uh, Dynamics, which was owned by Sierra at the time. And of course, I loved Sierra, so I was like, sure. "Oh, this is a sub studio of Sierra," and uh, they had needed ca- testers. And ah. I'm like, "Oh, this is a good part time job uh, during, of course, uh, QA. you know, during school, I can get into QA." And I was really not I, at that time. I was trying to do computer science and tech and stuff like that. So I was really well-versed in sort of like computers and HTML at the time. And so I came in and I took this like five-page test and I just passed it. And they said, okay, well, can you start work tomorrow? And so that phase, it was sort of like now the the founding of like the the PC versus console side because at that time, Dynamics was really only creating PC games, right? Right. And um, for the most part. And Sierra was really fundamentally mostly just making pc games so it was at that point early it's like oh pc is superior (laughs) you know it's um it's against the consoles and then when i sort of left that job and moved to california and ended up actually on the magazine side of things the the press side of stuff 
we had a lot of different unofficial and official magazines, and we had an Xbox magazine and a Dreamcast magazine. So even there, right, you get you get a cross like uh, sort of combat sort of scenario where you've got a PC magazine who thinks PC games are the best, right? It's, it's the, the truth, and then you've got an Xbox official Xbox magazine, and then you've got an official Dreamcast magazine. We had a PlayStation magazine. So Funny. I think my whole life has always been sort of that, you know, one against the other sort of thing, right? No, and again, it, it is so crazy, and it's still to this day. You still have people Xbox, PlayStation, like Nintendo. Sort of has fallen into like the abyss of everyone accepts it, and they're not really in competition with anyone. Like, if that makes sense. So it's yeah. really always like when you see stuff, it's like Xbox this, exclusives that, and it's like, yeah. like who really cares? Like, like I, I want to bring this up later, but since we're on the topic now, what do you think of this whole now thing that Xbox is saying that they want all their games on all consoles? Do you do you think it's best for business or even as consumers to have like sort of that Netflix model where you could play our stuff anywhere that st- could stream it? Right. You know, it's it's a it's a tough thing because I, I kind of fluctuate and I kind of go both ways, but. You know, games have reached a, a sort of a large audience, especially through mobile devices and things like that. True. And I've always had this: um, there is a standard that is created and then adopted by the industry as a whole. Right? We see this in like music, we see this in videos um, across a diverse number of, of sort of fields. And what ends up happening is like you get a consortium of companies; they draft sort of the design of the platform and the specs for it. And then anyone can license that and go out and build a Blu-ray player or a DVD player or a CD player and things like that, right? Because they conform to the standard. Um, We've never had that really in video games. The closest you can think of is maybe like the 3DO platform or something like that where like the hardware was licensed that you could license that and create your own hardware based off of the 3DO uh, platform. But I've always wondered, you know, would things be different? And the companies would never do this. But if, if Nintendo, Sony, and Microsoft or whoever came together and formed this group mm-hmm. and said, hey, this is the spec for video game console 1.0, mm-hmm. and this is the hardware parameters, this is the disc format, this is all this stuff. Now, yeah. anyone can manufacture that, and the cost, because everyone's manufacturing, the cost continues to come down, right? And you could buy any... You could buy a Samsung console. You could buy a Sony console, right? Just like you could a Blu-ray player or a DVD player. And it's less about the hardware and more about the content. And then people can focus more on creating the content and optimizing it for a singular platform, right? So I've always had this, you know, in the back of my head kind of thing like, oh, would that actually help the industry or not? Because you do lose competition, right? Because there's I was gonna bring that arguably up. there's yeah. an arguably a benefit of Xbox versus Sony or versus Nintendo where sure. they look at what each person is doing, cost wise, hardware wise, game wise, and they are obviously trying to compete and do better. And so it causes hopefully this continual elevation of quality and the lowering of price and things like that right that's the whole idea of the competitive landscape but what happens then though is you alienate alienate people by just the design of it so if there's an xbox exclusive i can only play it on an xbox and maybe my parents bought me a playstation that's all i have i can't i can't buy an xbox exactly now i can't play that game right and if you think about that from a from a general standpoint like if you imagine like a, a a Blu-ray movie. Granted, we've had competitive 
sort of formats in the sure. past, but one has always came out as a leader. Imagine if I said like, hey, you know, Casablanca has come out on, on video, but you can't, you can't uh, watch it because uh, <laughs> you have a Sony, you have a Sony Blu-ray player, right? right? Whereas I have a Samsung one or something like that. So that I think has always been a, a bad kind of experience for the consumer. If I'm getting into you know, the console space and things like that, how great would it be if I could go to a Best Buy or any store and I could just buy a game? Right. It doesn't matter. I know it's going to play. I would love and that And it's too. more about then um, just you know, elevating sort of the variety of games and the quality of games in order to be able to convince people to buy them and less about this whole thing where like now I have to worry about what platform or what console I have in order to play it, right? So that's sort of my weird kind of uh, approach to it. But to go back to your sort of question, um, I do think that, um, and because of what I said before, that allowing games to come onto other platforms is a, is a good thing, right? Like, you know, Microsoft... Uh, releasing games on Sony platforms and Nintendo platforms, I think is, is a good thing for uh, being able to reach a broader audience. Mm. Um, just like Sony is kind of like releasing their games on PC nowadays, right? right. It's like another audience and not exclusive to the console. Yep. Um, the challenge, of course, becomes now that if your games are available on multiple systems, um, why would I buy one console over another console, right? Sure. Like, how do I choose that? What do you? What incentives do I have? Right. So now it behooves the first party folks to build interesting consoles, and I think this is where Nintendo excels. Right? Nintendo's thing is not about power. Nope. It's not about anything. It's about uh, what can features can they add to it that make it compelling as a system. Yep. Exactly. And I think Sony and Microsoft can learn from that. And I mm. think if we're approaching and we're keeping this multi-console system. Uh, or sort of competitive landscape and games are being released on all of them, then really where the competition becomes is uh, how interesting of a console can I create? What features does it have that compel me, like Nintendo's been doing, um, to buy? And I think that's where Microsoft and Sony could really improve and and learn more because they've just been focusing on power, right, and speed and things like that, whereas Nintendo is like, how do I fundamentally make a system that is compelling in its own right um, by its design, right? So it's, no, a, it's an interesting agree. time. It's an interesting time. It is, it is, it is, but it's an exciting time, and we're like sort of in a golden age now of video games and all that f- sort of stuff. But if you're listening, and if you're into video games and books, please visit bossfightbooks.com for great books on classic video games. You'll find titles like Final Fantasy V, NBA Jam, Resident Evil, and so many others. Everything you see on their websites available in paperback and ebook format so please visit them at bossfightbooks.com and if you're into nerd culture like comic books like sports memorabilia please go to firstrow.ca use promo code thepodcast20 you'll receive 20% off they got a ton of stuff from old comic books new comic books old video games old sports memorabilia signed wrestling memorabilia anything you need it is there best thing is they ship worldwide even better they update daily so please visit them at firstrow.ca and if you want to support me directly, please visit my merchandise store at tpublic.com or scroll down on today's device. It's embedded right there in the description. Click on that link. It takes you right to the merchandise store. I got everything from hoodies to travel mugs, phone cases, anything you need or want. It is there. But the best thing, the easiest thing, the freest thing to do to support the show is rate, subscribe, review on all major platforms, most specifically Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. All right, Stephen. So when did your journey 
into Sega begin? Was that like your first major studio that you ended up working for? No, actually, it oh. was sort of on, on the closer to the tail end. So, like, I kind of got I've run the gambit uh, or of like gambit the, <laughs> of of the the large companies because okay. you know when I when I after the editorial side uh, I moved to California from Oregon because at the time in Oregon there weren't many um, video game developers. Right, there was Dynamics, like I talked gotcha. to you uh, yeah. about previously. There was Trilobite, who at the time had done a Seventh Guest and Eleventh Hour. Um, so, and then there was, uh, one other developer, I think it was garage games, but wasn't much a game development going on in, in Oregon. So I knew I had to leave and either go to like, at that time, either California or Texas, which were the two hotbeds of like tech and games gotcha. and things like that. Um, I kind of leaned eventually towards California cause I'm like, ah, worst case, my family's in Oregon. If I fail miserably, I can more easily just come <laughs> up to Oregon from California, sure. right? you know, with the tail between my legs sort of situation. <laughs> Um, but, um, I ended up, um, landing a gig, uh, writing about games. That was sort of my foot in the door because I had a lot of, um, uh, HTML experience, webmaster experience kind of going through college. And so I was brought in as a webmaster slash writer for one of the, uh, websites for one of the magazines that existed at the time, which was ultra game players. And so I, I worked there and, and kind of got my foot in the door, uh, on the, in the industry in this way in California. Um, started writing some reviews. In fact, my first review, which I was so nervous about, which were ultra game players, was for Killer Instinct Gold. Oh, because uh, I was a fighting, I was fighting game guy at the time, right? So that was the gotcha. first one. They said, "Hey, you're a fighting game guy. <laughs> How about you write this four-page review for wow. Killer Instinct Gold?" And so I remember I was very nervous. It was my first published review, um, Crazy. and but I, you know, I loved it. Um, I, I loved writing about the games, and so kind of went, you know, kept working there for a bit, and was offered. Um, uh, the job of helping to start up the PlayStation magazine there at Imagine. And like I said, it was an exciting time because while I was on the PlayStation magazine, right. we also had an official Dreamcast magazine. We had an official Xbox magazine. We had a PC all. magazine. Yeah, exactly. Had <laughs> Smart. Why not? This is fun, right? The, the, the water cooler kind of conversations about like, oh, this game came out as exclusive. Oh, but we got this game and it's better. It was just fun, right? right. It was like a bunch of kids. We were in our 20s. That's funny. Having fun, talking about games. It's still some of the highlight sort of of my life as far as just enjoyable time. It felt like hanging around with my friends, talking about games and writing about games. So it was such a Perfect. great sort of experience. Yeah. Um, but I knew that I wanted to get back into games okay. and game development in general. And so I eventually just reached a point. I was there probably like seven or eight years. I said, you know what? I'm starting to get older. I should probably return back to game development before it gets too late. And so I, I, I decided to just leave and um, landed at Electronic Arts oh, nice. and worked there on basically helping them with any kind of game that was developed outside of EA. So if it wasn't developed in their internal studios, oh. uh, I was working on. So that was okay, the year cool. where like Battleship, Battle, I'm sorry, uh, Battlefield was being worked on there was a batman game mm. i worked on an rts i worked on a platformer called tie the tasmanian tiger so it was a nice again you know going back to what i was saying earlier about being exposed to a variety of genres and types of games right. what appealed me to that ea partners was that exactly that i got to work on a variety of different types of games and learn the the development process and the choices that are being made across a variety of things like cool. you know an RTS and a platformer and a licensed game and things like that so I learned a lot from that <laughs> um, and then eventually move over to Activision because growing up um, I was also a fan of like superheroes and Marvel and comic books and, and things like that sure. and the head 
one of the heads of the EA groups left to go start a studio who was going to be focused on Marvel products okay. and Marvel games. Right. And this was right before starting to go into the period where the Marvel Cinematic Universe was starting. Iron gotcha. Man was starting to percolate, right? Right. But there hadn't really been like a lot of compelling superhero movies. X-Men, I think, was the first one that came out that balanced that you know, sort of comedy with serious, seriousness. Yeah. But everything else, people didn't treat superhero movies very seriously in general. No. So, But you know, we were trying to change all that with the games as well. And so I, I kind of went over there to Activision to help work on uh, a Wolverine game. And, um, you know, worked on that for a bit, eventually ended up shifting to a different studio, um, which was kind of disappointing. And and they continued to work and made a Wolverine game. But what led me uh, what led me from there was to head to Sega, which was great because I ended up I almost worked at Sega for almost a decade, you know, just shy of a decade. So it was my longest block of time anywhere. So obviously I loved it. I enjoyed it. I was a fan of Sega growing up and the the games that the types of games they created. And, you know, having the privilege to work on a variety of franchises like Sonic and Crazy Taxi and Shinobi and some of oh, that was classic. great, right? It's the inner kid, right? The inner kid yes, is just like of course. elevating <laughs> being able to work on these uh, these sorts of things. Um, That's awesome. But, uh, yeah, and I would have I would have uh, stayed at Sega. I loved it. I was Like I said, I was there for almost a decade. But they ended up deciding to move because of the success of Sonic and licensing and winding into movies and stuff. Oh. They moved the... They moved the company from San Francisco, which is where I was, to Southern California. Mm. And at that point, I was you know, too entrenched in the Bay Area. I love the Bay Area. Sure. I know my friends, family, and things like that. And I really, you know, though it broke my heart, I was like, you know, I want to stay here and I'm going to separate. And I took some time off because the last few years of SEG were pretty hard and stressful. There's a lot of Sonic stuff that we worked on and things like that. And it was just a, a, a blur of like <laughs> stuff going on would say right uh, just like sonic would say and um i took some time off and you know did normal life stuff relaxed and and did things that i didn't get a chance to do and then when i kind of emerged again and wanted to get back in games i didn't want to jump back into a large company because i'd already been at ea activision and sega right yeah i wanted to started a smaller studio that was doing some good stuff and had a, a some good plans for the future and that's sort of when i rejoined with Mike Micah and some of the folks from uh, from the editorial side that I right. had known from uh, years earlier. That's awesome. And, you know, they kind of explained what they were doing about sort of the preservation of games, how they were trying to, like, make these collections that uh, provide the historical context for this stuff and try to educate people about the origins of video games and things like that. And that seemed sure. really exciting to me. And uh, the first product that they talked to me about was Street Fighter. So Street Fighter and the Street Fighter collection was the first product that I worked on oh, when again. I came to up. So that was obviously, he knew, you know, <laughs> he mentioned that, and I was like, yeah, okay, let's, you know, I'll, I'll come in and I'll help produce Street Fighter. And, you know, that the rest has sort of been history and, and the evolution of digital clips. And I've been here uh, almost uh, over seven years now. It's almost like seven and a half that's years awesome. so it's been exciting no that, that sounds fantastic and i want to get into digital eclipse of course because you guys had like a banger year probably two three years to, at least it's but 
but back to Sega, because I'm interested, again, I grew up on Sega, and speaking of consoles, like, who didn't love the Genesis Master System? A lot of people liked, but going back and trying to play those games, I, they don't really stand the test of time, but Genesis, every Sega Genesis collection that's ever dropped for any system, I've always gotten it, a hook, line, and sinker, right? Now, you were there after the console, obviously, was gone, and so forth and so on. Yeah. Now, do you think Sega would have had a chance if they kept going with consoles or did they do the smart move and just going to software? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's always this question that people bring up. I don't think that they could have competed against the onslaught of the PlayStation two. There was too oh, much, okay. you know, there was too much coming off the PlayStation over a hundred million, right? There was a huge amount of hype and just, excitement for the ps2 it was like a juggernaut it's true and you're right you know and you know you saw the ripples of that you know the dreamcast having to deal with just the thought of the ps2 coming out and having challenges doing that and um so i think it would have been really really tough i think the only way that they could have tried to compete against that is to maybe go that nintendo route where they devised a console that had very unique capabilities or unique oh. capabilities that would um, really sell it. And this is a bad idea, but like you can imagine like, oh, it's this console that's just designed to bring home a arcade games. And it's, it has these, uh, you know, attachable, detachable sort of peripherals like the Samba, you know, okay, Samba yeah, yeah. stuff or sure. like the light gun for House of the Dead and things like, and it was all about the peripherals gotcha. and replicating the arcade experience, right? Oh. Maybe that's a direction they could have headed in. Right. I don't know. Sure. But I'm pretty sure that if they had stuck with the sort of, here is a typical console and then tried to compete against Sony, I don't think they could have done anything uh, to win against that, unfortunately. Um, I, I just, it was just a, a, a gargantuan, Thing that that Sony was unleashing upon the world and, and ended up becoming the most successful console of all time, pretty much, right? So That's it would true. have been it would have been a tough battle. But I think if they could have come up with an interesting angle or some sort of design for the console that felt different from the other consoles, right. then maybe it could have had its place, right? It could have had this very sort of decent following, and it could have been profitable and things like that. Um, but outside of that, I think it would have been really hard. No, that's fair. That's fair. Okay, and now obviously Sonic, because yes. other than Mario, Sonic to me is like one of the most memorable video game characters of all right. time. Like, you know what I mean? And there's been so many different renditions. Unfortunately, hasn't received the love that Mario has over the years. Now, what do you think, again, working on Sonic and seeing now the new renditions, because the last two games, I think Superstars and Frontiers, fantastic. Yeah. Totally different from each other, though. What do you think the perfect Sonic game is? The side-scroller or the open world? Yeah, you know it's tough, and this is the this is the challenge. I feel that there's two challenges that Sonic has always had in my you know in my humble opinion, and one is that Mario doesn't necessarily have. One is, you know, Sonic is very fast. So from an asset creation perspective, there's a lot of game assets, backgrounds, and things that have to be created for a Sonic level. Right? He's he's going through That's such true. a large amount of distance in a very small mm. um, amount of time. Okay. So from a development perspective. That's just challenging in general. Whereas right. Mario, right, he's plodding along at a decent pace. He's 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 not going super fast in, in most cases, and so Mario levels can be confined in relatively small space. Right. And the benefit of that is that in a smaller Mario level, you can really fine tune that and tweak it so that every aspect of that level is like perfect. Right, the whole experience is perfect. Whereas Sonic, it's more about like 
how do we keep up this feeling of, of speed and acceleration while also still giving the player control to be able to do stuff and, you know, and make choices and things like that. And it's, and it's really hard. So it's kind of daunting from just a base level where you have to build a sonic environment. Right. Right. Um, but going back, so I always feel that that's kind of difficult. And the teams have sort of interpreted those challenges in a few different ways, which is why we have, you know, side-scrolling Sonic. We have sort of more 3D, pseudo-3D Sonic. We have yeah. open-world Sonic. Um, we have sort of these one-off kind of scenarios like Lost World, which is like, you know, on, on cylinders, which are constrained. And it's a mixture of, like, running and, like, you know, normal speed Sonic mm. and things like that. Right, right. So the, I, And I think the challenge of that is... What you get is you have fans of each type of, you know, each different type of game. Right. So you may have fans of the 2D classic side-scrolling, more platform-oriented stuff of the original Sonic games and Sonic Mania and things like that. Um, and then, which is fine, but then you've changed your formula a bit. Maybe you've gone to like a Sonic Adventure kind of mm. uh, design, right? Where it's like 3D, um, it's a little bit more extreme, but you got some 3D worlds. And then you've got new fans who like that kind of game, right? Right. Then you go and you do another type of game that's like open world. And you have new fans that are that type of game. <laughs> so every time, the challenge comes that every time you make a Sonic game, it has to head in one of those directions. And then instantly, you're kind of putting off fans who were fans of the other types of games, right? That's the thing. So if that's I make challenge. an open world yeah. game, maybe the person who grew up with traditional 2D side-scrolling Sonic doesn't like that so maybe they don't buy that game or they're not interested in that game sure. um mario for the most part while it has gone into 3d it hasn't gone in as many kind of gameplay variations i feel as sonic has right. um, and so i think the challenge comes is that you have this very split audience for sonic who always likes this particular kind of game and so depending on what you release that's the audience that you kind of get and i think that's the challenge that sonic team has all the time and i think that's why now you see more Sonic games coming out with a mixture of game types. So like you have your classic kind of 2D Sonics, then you have your 3D kind of Sonics, right, and, and stuff like yep. that. And I think they'll have to keep doing that in order to kind of win over each of those audience bases, you know. Um, but for me, I've always uh, I've always been more of a fan of the more platformy oriented Sonic of the olden days. Yeah. While there you. is speed, it is, yeah. there's a lot more platforming yes, in it, right? And that's exactly. what I really like. Those are the experiences that I like versus the the kind of gameplay that is like, okay, I'm running super fast. What do I need to do to keep up that speed? Mm. Uh, I'm less I'm less about that and more about classic platforming Sonic. No, I totally agree. And it's funny too because video game fans are so fickle because the, the, the way I look at it is the whole Resident Evil thing. When they went from like... On around Resident Evil 4 after that one, everyone was like, oh, this is the greatest game of all time. How could you do better? Then 5 came out more action-oriented. But then people were like, oh, I'm starting to get rid of the old formula. They got to change it. But then they change it like, oh, I don't like it, action. And it's like, well, like, you know what I mean? And it's like, what do you want Like at that point? And then obviously they came out with Biohazard and now Village and now it's back to its glory days and everyone loves it. And it's like, well, if you didn't complain in the first place, they wouldn't have gone down the action route and they probably would have kept going with with that, like, you know what I mean, horror type genre. But it's like, you can't, it's true, you can't please them all. But I think that, again, this is as a fan, when you have like, say like a good IP, like for example, Assassin's Creed, one of my absolute favorites you could change up elements of the gameplay but if you change it completely where it's a different genre then i'm out like why not just start a new ip if that's what you want to do like does that make sense yeah no i 
totally agree with you. And I think part of it is a mixture of some things uh, that, you know, it's tough. Like sometimes you get developer fatigue where mm. they are building the same kind of game and they're, you know, whereas a, a player might play a game for only 30, 40 hours, right? You have a teams who are working on these games for years at a time. And by the time a game comes out, they are just burnt out of that type of game. Uh. And so the next one, they want to make something a bit different. Gotcha. Right? That makes sense. But, but maybe the audience, the game playing audience, isn't quite at that point yet, right? right? And so that's where I, get, I think you get this sort of clash it, when the audience is not keeping up with the developers, and that's when you get this sort of sort of splinter where the developers are like, I just want to try something new. This is the direction I'm going in because I've been working on these games for like seven years. And, you know, the, the game player's like, but we've only had two games. Like, we still love this. This <laughs> gameplay is very solid. Why sure. are you changing it so much for this third game um, kind of scenario, right? So right. I think that's part of the reason that you see that. Um, and it also might be the case where maybe in some cases they're building a whole new game and they're like, okay, this is cool. This is interesting. But it's hard to sell an original IP. Mm. What if we put an existing IP on it and try to shoehorn it in there, right? right? Because, you know, when you're spending that much money on these games, you want to have every chance of it being a success. So I can of imagine course. there are definitely some scenarios where maybe, let's say, an Assassin's Creed game didn't start out as an Assassin's Creed game, um, but ended up becoming one. And it was like the original. Like the original Assassin's Creed game didn't start out as an Assassin's Creed game. It was right. something completely entirely different. Um, so... I think those two reasons are kind of why we see these these changes in the directions. But I do think that a majority of it probably is just the team, especially if you have a lot of team members mm. on the development side who have been working on the same IP for many, many years. They just want to try something new and different. No, that's a good point of view. Because yeah, obviously being yourself a creator, you would know that sort of stuff. And the one I always harken back to that I think did the best job, other than Mario, like splintering from the original side-scrolling stuff, is God of War. The the path it took right. still kept its core essence of that yes. like gritty, grimy, like still hack and slash, but with that yes. RPG element now and sort of open world esque. Like you know what I mean? So yeah, I think they open world. Yes. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that and I don't think anyone complained and said, Oh, this is not like the originals. No, that yeah, they did a really great job of progressing that um, that sort of game. And you know, I think the design of the original games lend itself well to where they kind of took it, right? And so right. they had the fortunate aspect of having very solid, uh, th you know, three plus sort of games and that kind of style. Like, okay, where is the evolution of this and where do we take it? And then also having like, you know, Corey Barlog, who came from originally like working on the early God of Wars and then coming back to sort of like help, you know, redefine what it is, I think really helped a lot because sometimes you get that moment, but there aren't any strong uh, sort of leads who worked on the original games who could kind of distill out, like, these are the core elements of the original games, what made them great. How do we map that to sort of a new direction? And without someone who has sort of lived in both worlds and had an opportunity to kind of, you know, work on the earlier properties, it could be a more of a guessing game, right? So I think Corey coming back after a break uh, from Santa Monica Studios and, you know, doing a lot of more like movie and Hollywood and creative stuff and being able to come back, take his lessons from the time that he's away and then also take sort of like the pillars of what made the early God of War games good. Right. I think that helped to kind of drive the direction of where they headed in and why it landed in such a good place for God of War. Well, that leads right into Digital Eclipse because you guys are notoriously known for dropping re-releases, remakes, <laughs> stuff like that. Now, 
when you guys don't have someone from the original team, do you find that as a hurdle versus like now you guys obviously have all the access to Atari stuff. So it's going to be easier moving forward for you guys. But before that, like, was it harder to not deal with some of the original creators? You know, it is challenging, which is why we do with every sort of release that we do, we try to reach out to as many of the people who were involved in the original products nice. as possible. Okay. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, those people have gone off into the world and, and you just have to live through like the documents that they created and oh, you know, okay. the concept and you learn through that. So when we can't engage with the actual people, we kind of look at the legacy of what they left behind in the documents and stuff and kind of sift through that and spend a lot of like time learning about the IP from that stuff. Um, but ideally, we do bring in uh, folks uh, who are directly involved with it. And oftentimes, it can lead to some amazing things. Like oh. one example was when we did uh, Disney Classic Games, which was the collection that had Lion King and Aladdin in it. Loved it. And those, you know, everyone loves those those games. But yeah. we took this opportunity because the team was, the original Aladdin team was getting together for a reunion down, I think it was in LA oh. or around LA. Okay. And we're like, holy cow, everyone's coming together. <laughs> right. So we, we flew, you know, we got a, a crew, a uh, camera crew down there and we sent folks to go interview them sure. there because they were all together. And what was neat about that is it was like the first time that a lot of team members were remembering those days, right, of working on Aladdin, for example, and just the challenges and stuff. But what was interesting about it and why it's so important to talk to these people is that during their interviews, they would often cite things like, oh, I wish we could have fixed that or we could have done this. We didn't have enough time. We had to get a manufacturer on cartridge, right? There were no patches at that time. And, you know, we were watching these videos of the, the raw footage of these interviews. Yeah. And I'm sitting there like, hey, you know, these guys have really good ideas how to improve uh, Aladdin. And, and they didn't do it, but we can do it. Exactly. And so we took all of their feedback and we made a new version, updated version of Aladdin called the Final Cut, which actually fixes all of the bugs and all of the, the things that they felt uh, they wanted to address but didn't have right. enough time. And then we created what was basically now the you know the the ultimate version of the Genesis Aladdin, right? right? And so that's I give that as an example of why it's important to reach out to these people. I'll give another example. Like we worked on this collection that was Samurai Showdown based, okay. so it had all of the Samurai Showdown arcade games. Right. So we flew to Japan and we managed to get in touch with some of the folks who worked on the Samurai Showdown games, okay. and we're interviewing them. During the interview with one of the game directors, I think it was the game director of one of the Samurai Showdowns, mm-hmm. um, he had just in the middle of conversation brought up that there was a, another version of Samurai Showdown 5 oh. that never got released Look at that. and actually was only in arcades for one day. What? Um, because it was the tail end of the Neo Geo okay. and that whole thing and SNK, I think we're transitioning away from that. So it got put into test, and it was pulled so quickly that even I think team members who wanted to go see it in the arcades could, didn't make it there in time. Right. So after that, it disappeared. No one talked about it because SNK moved on to focus on other platforms. They moved away from the Neo Geo and the MBS hardware and all that stuff. Sure. But during this interview, he said like, "Oh yeah, there is this final version of that, and um, it just never got released." And we were like. What? There's another, there's another Samurai Showdown game? That's awesome. And he's like, I think I have that on a hard drive at the house or something like that. And we're like, wow. oh my gosh. And so 
we talked to SNK and we made a deal with him and we got the code and we finished up the English translations and we released it as Samurai Showdown 5 Perfect, um, which, like I said, no one really knew existed. And it would have, like, if we weren't there to interview those people at the time, it could have just completely disappeared and no one would have known about it, right? It would never would have come out. But because we go and we spend all this time talking to people, researching the behind-the-scenes content, we're able to discover these things, the archaeology of it all, right? Discovering these things. And in some cases like that, we found a game that no one even knew existed for and we're able to release it. And then eventually later on, SNK took it and actually put it on a Neo Geo cartridge that they officially sold. And it became the final Neo Geo game that was ever released. But I feel that that's sort of like an amazing story (laughs) that... And it's, it, it's always those little things. They may not do that scale, but for every product we do, we have those sort of discoveries. And I think that's why it's important to either, A, first off, try your best to talk to anyone who's involved with the product, even if on the PR side or marketing sure. side or development side. And if you can't do that, you need to scrounge and find as much of the behind-the-scenes content as you can and look at it and learn through that before being able to tell the story of those games. Yeah, no kidding. And the one thing I love that you guys do is, again, you mentioned in, in passing is the quality of life aspect that you add into all these remakes because you get two f- sorts of fans buying your games you get the young generation who never got to play them to to have play them for the first time and then you get my generation who grew up with them and could not clear the bomb stage in tmnt the first one so now you could get to go back and actually finish these games because you wanted that as a child like you know what i mean like and it's just so much more fun to, and you accomplish everything. You get to go through it. And again, it's just that nostalgia factor. And it's just great what you guys put out there, my friend. No, I, I thank you. And I think what you, you know, the quality of life improvements are important because of yes. some of the reasons that you stated. And there's sort of two ways we approach it. One is obviously we want people to be able to enjoy the whole experience, right? A team worked really hard on this game. I like that. We want you to be able to play it and do it. So that's why we add things like, rewind right you make a mistake and yep. rewind um it's also part of the reason we came up with new systems like our watch videos which are for people who aren't familiar which is basically like it's a recording of one of us sometimes me sometimes other people playing through a game but it's not a video it it looks like a video because you can fast forward and rewind kind of like netflix right you can skip right. forward skip chapters and stuff like that but it isn't a video it's actually me playing it so what's neat about that and different about that is that Anytime you want to, you can press a button and no matter where you are in the game, you can jump in and start playing from there. That's awesome. And I love that's that. that's how, you know, we can help people who are like, I can't get past this part. So you can either watch me or someone else do it and say, ah, I understand this now. I can go do it. Or you can just play until I've done it and then you can press the button and then start playing from there and you so can smart. continue on playing the game, right? So, you know, it's always important to do that, uh, to include that stuff. We investigate like, you know, different enhancements and stuff that we can do. But the key thing that we want to make sure of is that it's all optional, right? Yes. We want you to be able to play this in the way that you want to. So if you want to play exactly like it was uh, originally with NES Sprite Flicker yep. or whatever, you know, yeah, love you it. can. <laughs> but if you want to utilize the power of modern systems and like turn off Flicker or allow for more sprites on the screen yes. or things like that, we can do that, right? So I think... With all of our collections, we really spend a lot of time evaluating what makes sense for this particular project, what enhancements and quality of life stuff we can do, but also let's make sure to make uh, to, to make it all optional for consumers so they can 
we can give them the tools and they can choose which ones they want to use in order to enjoy this experience the way that they want to. No, most definitely. And like, like I mentioned, you guys had a stellar 2023 from the Kawabunga collection to Atari 50, Karateka, yes. Wizardry. These guys were nominated yes. for Studio of the Year for, for multiple award shows. It's like, kudos to you guys, man. And now, looking back, can you believe you guys put out all this content? And are you guys all happy with the content? Well, you know, it's it's always um, challenging because I think I can speak for any game developer where, you know, it's very rare when you've finished a product and you sit there and you're like, I've done everything that I can do for this product, right? Sure. It's done. We're shipping it, right? Because there's always more that you can add. It's always a challenge of like, should we add more stuff? Does it make sense to add more stuff? Uh, Is this okay. clear enough, right? Should we have added this game instead of this game? Should we, so, you know, we... we what we try to do is kind of like come up with a story that we're going to say that we're going to share with the world and stick with that and try to pack in as much stuff that helps to tell that story. Um, So I think what I can say is that we're proud of all the stories that we've shared in these collections, right? Like the behind the scenes story or an Atari 50 kind of like the, the Genesis and uh, of Atari over the last 50 years, right? And and the sort of the progress of the company and and the sort of monumental, impacts that they've had on the video game industry and the arcade industry so i think all of those things we're we're especially proud of and i think what's neat is that between cowabunga collection and atari 50 you kind of have both sides of the coin you have cowabunga is kind of like you have turtles ip which is about as broad as you get like casual every generation has a turtles story right they have a turtles cartoon they have a turtles comic book and things like that so Your interpretation of what Turtles is may be different between one person to another, but everyone knows Turtles. And so I think that's why that did very well because it, for the older folks, it brought back the nostalgia of playing those old games when they were younger. Exactly. But as a young or modern Turtles fan, there's so much behind the scenes content. There's so much, uh, there's so much, so many games in that collection that it becomes mm-hmm. like, oh my God, I love Turtles. I need to buy this. So it, it appeals to both kind of groups. But that's sort of what's great about collections like that is that it brings people who may not be aware of sort of our more hardcore efforts that Digital Clips does, um, but it might it might bring them into our sort of hey, this is Digital Clips, they're doing this cool stuff, right. and they learn that through something like Turtles. Whereas Atari Fifty, Atari Fifty is sort of like more of that hardcore, right? Definitely. Um, kind of leaning towards people who grew up with the 2600 and Mm -hmm. and those older platforms, right? And those who care about Atari and where it came (laughs) from and where it's going and stuff. But, you know, uh, like a 13-year-old kid right now probably isn't too excited about Atari. Sure. Uh, He might be wearing an Atari Fuji, you know, symbol uh, hoodie that he bought at the mall, right? But really, fundamentally, he's not not really that uh, concerned about Atari and, and the games. But... What's neat about things like Atari 50 and Kalbunga is that we put so much time into providing sort of the context and explain to people why these games and why these companies are important, mm-hmm. right? So it's not just a collection of games. You go through and you're like, ah, I now understand why this game was made, why it's important, yes. you know, why Atari made these decisions. And it gives you this context that you wouldn't normally have. And so my biggest sort of what makes me put a smile on my face is when I get emails from people who say, hey, you know, I'm 21. I didn't grow up with Atari at all, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Like yeah. I, I played some Atari games, but I bought this collection because it, it's such an interesting 
project, and it's so different, and it taught me so much about the video game industry as a whole and where it came from and how it's going, right? Right. And so they may not have that attachment to Atari, but they want to learn, um, and they want to to see where it all came from. And I think those are the victories that I love the most, right? Mm. Because we've convinced someone who's not interested in something to engage with it. And I think also with stuff like Atari and the stories that we tell – they become useful tools, and we're seeing this now, like schools, universities, and stuff like say, hey, I love to teach aspects of Atari 50 in my class True. as part of history or video game knowledge and stuff like that, and, and of the other collections. So I think it becomes this very neat and unique way of preserving video game history in an informative and fun way that you can pull off the shelf years from now and still uh, learn from. But not point. only that, but potentially because of its presentation, be utilized to educate people in places like schools and other things which is kind of exciting no no doubt and that's exactly it it's it's not a video game the way i look at it it's an actual experience it's a museum it's like it's a different art form but it just so happens you get to play it on a console right then that's what i love about it and again like and every collection you guys have it's not like it's cut and paste it's something different like you know it's a digital eclipse project but like you if you go back and play like the Mega Man collection versus the Cowabunga yeah. collection you'll see the big differences and what you guys yes. bring to the table like you know and that's what I love as well and I, yeah I think that's the thing while you know the Atari 50 presentation or the, the interactive documentary timeline kinds of presentation has its place and, and, it, and it's suited well for certain projects right it doesn't it doesn't fit every project exactly right? and so we really, when we go in, when we're looking at what we're trying to do, is like, what are the goals of this project, right? And 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 how can we present this information? And sometimes it's important to put the spotlight on the games themselves, like, mm-hmm. say, a Calabunga collection or Mega Man, where the focus that like, you boot up is like the, the games are the focus, right? Right. But going into something like Atari 50, it's more about the company and the history that's the focus, and the games are there to support it, but the games aren't the number one priority there, right? They just are, they're just the same as like art and documents and videos. They are part of the picture that tell the story. And so, you know, that's the key thing with us. I think our differentiator is that when we're doing the research through these collections, part of that is determining like, well, what makes sense? How do we want to present this? And so for some things, it's one way. For some things, it's the other way. There's no one solution for everything, right? No, and that's so true. Okay, quickly, before we wrap this up, a couple of things I want to pick yeah. your brain for. What was the game you had most fun working on, and what was the most challenging game you worked on? Um, I think that, in both cases, it was Street Fighter. Oh, okay, that's fair. So, Street Fighter was, because I'm a huge fan of Street Fighter, it was just a joy and honor to be able to gather all of these Street <laughs> Fighter games you know, explore the history of Street Fighter, share that and put it in a collection where we're presenting all of these facets of Street Fighter. Um, But coming into it, it was a very ambitious product comparatively to even like Mega Man and stuff like that because we're doing a ton of stuff. We're doing online. We're doing, uh, we're ripping sprites from the games and showing the sprites and having to display that stuff. We had like the early sort of designs of like this interactive timeline that Ken went through the history of Street Fighter, right? right. We had to do the emulation grade for all of mm. the, the, the games. We had to add like training modes for games that wow. didn't have training modes. We had, and there was all of these. And also, it was <laughs> right when the Switch came out, so it was a new platform that we were trying Even to better. Well. <laughs> so that's why I sort of say, like, you know, there were a lot of Funny. challenges that we had to overcome in order to release um, Street Fighter. But because I love 
the franchise so much, and I still play it to this day, mm-hmm. it was also my joy. So it was this balance. And I think the only way that we were to get through and all the challenges is because of the team and my love for the IP and, and things like that. Sure. You know, and I think it, I think it, uh, you know, resonates in the product because I'm surprised now, even now, like probably like four years or so after the product's release, every three months it still sells over a hundred thousand units. It's crazy. It's shocking to me. It is consistently every three months it continues to sell and it has not dropped. Um, and I'm just amazed. I'm so humbled by that. That's and awesome. you know, it just goes to show you that when you build something that really resonates, that has the quality and sort of the behind the scenes content that people are interested in, the value proposition is there. And even many, many, many years later, it's still relevant, right? It doesn't age. So, no, exactly, exactly. Well, I know you can't tip your hat on upcoming projects and stuff like that, or even IPs you want to work with in the future, but you don't have to say yes or no, but I want to throw this one at you, and I hope the Julie Clips gets your hands on this. Please, my friends, come out with the four original Mortal Kombats on a collection. That I'm putting that out there in the universe. <laughs> no, I, I, I totally, you know, I love Mortal Kombat. I've always wanted to uh, work on a Mortal Kombat collection. It's certainly for not... A lack of trying. We did the um, the previous sort of arcade collection for Mortal Kombat years and years ago. Oh, okay. Before I, it was for my time. Gotcha. So we have, as a company, worked on Mortal Kombat. So there you uh, for go. Sure. But there's so much that we could do. I have so many ideas of oh, things I it. could do with a Mortal Kombat collection. Um, and my only hope is that sometime that you know Warner Brothers and uh, those guys over at NetherRealm see what yes. we did with Street Fighter and kind of say like, hey, right? if you could do that with Mortal Kombat, that'd be phenomenal. Um, I, I'd love to do that. I mean, unfortunately, we're not working on anything right now. We have our hands full with so many other things. Um, our next project is uh, Lama Soft, the story of Jeff Minter, which is a follow-up to the making of Karateka. So we're going to follow and kind of talk about Jeff, who's probably the longest-running indie developer of all time, and his interesting and quirky, very quirky games that uh, he developed under the LamaSoft kind of brand (laughs) over the decades. And so that's going to be a fun one. That's going to be coming out this year. And, um, you know, we got some other surprises that we haven't announced yet. Uh, A lot of stuff this year. Uh, So uh, keep your eyes open because uh, there's plenty of games coming from Digital Clips in uh, 2024 and we're looking forward to announcing them that's awesome well steven thank you very much for coming aboard my friend it's been an honor it's been a pleasure awesome chat with you promote whatever you want to i know you promoted some stuff already there but if you want to promote your socials where people can get a hold of you floor is all yours my friend yeah i mean if you want to uh, find out more about digital clips we're on every social network there is um, you can go to digitalclips.com as well and sign up for a newsletter which we don't send out very often but <laughs> it's very informative um, sometimes we'll even send free games out with that yep. so we have done in the past so uh, feel free to join if you want to uh, if you want to reach out to me or just chat about classic games uh, i'm uh, at frostman 007 f-r-o-s-t-m-a-n-007 on twitter that's my primary sort of social network so uh yeah definitely come by engage in conversation uh check out our facebook pages and our socials and and uh you know share your desires for what you want us to work on next because we definitely listen to it we have a list we have a list that we track down every time you know we make a mark next to every sort of ip that uh, (laughs) when it's brought up to us so it does matter 
Um, so if you have a strong feeling about something we should work on next, definitely uh, send us a message or, or post it in our socials. We definitely appreciate it. That's awesome. And for myself, you can find me on Instagram and X under Finger Styles, or you can follow the podcast on X, the podcast app. Email us your thoughts, suggestions, comments, anything you want to get off your chest at the podcast app at gmail.com. Please support those fine sponsors. That's Boss Fight Books and First Row Collectibles. And most importantly, please rate, subscribe, review on all the major platforms. And if you liked the conversation today and you want to go back and listen to other episodes featuring more people who have made video games like Josh Sway, Howard Scott Warsaw, and obviously Mike Micah to name just a few. All right. One last thing before I let you go, my friend. What is your Mount Rushmore of video game characters? Oh, goodness. Um, I mean, I think because uh, Mario has to be there. Of course. Uh, Sonic, because I've worked on Sonic. And okay. I love Sonic. Um, I, let's see. If I had to put a couple more folks on there who, you know, I'm a big fan of Sly Cooper. It's a weird one. Okay. I'll put Sly Cooper on there. That's fine. Uh, it's like he just had a huge uh, impact. Those games had a huge impact on me um, for sure. And the other one, we talked about this, but I was enamored by this uh, franchise, this character, but Kratos is me a huge too. one for me. Yeah. Uh, I played those games to death, um, and I still do, and I just love the stuff that they do with that character, and I continue to love it, and I can't wait to see what they uh, they have next. But uh, I think those those four, in some degree, while I'm sure I could come up with many others, of course. They, they come to the top of my head right now as, as ones that, like, I really, really love and, and have enjoyed a lot of hours playing. Because it's so hard to actually be like, because you could do it in categories. Like, do you want to go like the original? Because then you could have to throw in like Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, like, you know what I mean? Or oh, yeah. do you go with the more recent ones that have like catapulted games, like yeah. your, like like you said, like Kratos and so forth and so on. Or even Laura Croft, you could throw in there too. Yeah. There's another one, right? So Yeah, I love Laura Croft and I'm, I'm excited for that. HD sort of upport that they kind of did, but yeah, Laura's another one that I am a huge fan of. I mean, you have conversations about a myriad of those right. uh, those properties that I that I love. So I, how I kind of do is like whatever comes to the top of my brain. That's probably my most recent conversations I've had with people in the right. office. And that, that's what uh, that what that's what comes out as the current crop right now. Awesome. On that note, he's Steven. I'm Steve. This is the podcast. Peace. <laughs>